We're looking at the events of the Exodus in the Old Testament, when God people delivered, when God delivered His people out of Egypt, eventually brought them to the Promised Land. We are now still in Egypt, haven't left yet, but are getting awful close. Our story picks up today in chapter 12 of Exodus, and it's the story of the beginning of the Passover. And it's a lengthy text, so I will try to be moving along with it. Pay attention to a lot of detail, because we'll refer to a lot of that detail in a moment. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it, any of it raw or boil in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And now moving over toward the end of the chapter, or really the middle of the chapter, then the Lord Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take the bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. The, and the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord shall pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter the house to strike you. You shall observe this as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised you, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? 
you shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but he spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I think this is a very familiar story to most of you. This is the institution of the Passover. The word Passover, Pasha, means in the original Hebrew, Passover. It means to pass over. And that's exactly what happened when the death angel came to wreak judgment upon the house of the Egyptians. If he saw blood on the post of the doors and the lintels, he would pass over that house and go to the next one. And if he saw blood on that doorpost, he would pass over that house and go to the next one. And all throughout the land and where there was blood on the doorpost, there was no death in the household. But where there was no blood on the doorposts, of the entrance of the houses, the death angel came and took the firstborn of every household in Egypt. This is the beginning in the life of Israel of their sacrificial system. Now we know that sacrifice had been since the beginning. The Lord himself had sacrificed animals in order to get their skins, in order to make a covering for Adam and Eve. The Lord himself was the first priest performing this service of covering, kafar, atoning for Adam and Eve. We know that Abel offered sacrifice, Seth offered sacrifice, Enoch offered sacrifice, Noah offered sacrifice. Coming all the way down to the days of the patriarchs, Abraham offered sacrifices to the Lord. So did Isaac and Jacob. So this is not the beginning of sacrifice in the Bible. The notion of sacrifice goes back to the garden. It is ancient. It is absolutely vital to understanding redemptive history. That is the story of how God redeems his people. But now God is going to be even more specific He's going to institute for them and constitute for them a particular sacrificial ceremony that's going to have the elements that he needs for all of the sacrifices that he'll bring about later. And finally, the sacrifice of his own son upon the cross. So if we get it right on Passover, we'll understand it right concerning Christ. We will understand the gospel. Remember Paul said... I delivered unto you that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. What scriptures? Starting with Passover. We understand the death of Christ, the cross, that bloody ordeal that Christ underwent as our representative and in our place, our substitute, dying for us, taking that penalty that we deserved, We understand that in terms of the things we're going to learn from the Passover 
and the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. And the Passover is the basic beginning of all that. In fact, they're still in Egypt. They haven't left yet. Pharaoh hasn't let them go. They're getting ready to go. This is the night of their departure. And the Lord tells them the process that he wants them to go through that evening there in the night of the Passover. Now, a few things in the Bible need to be followed through. From the Passover, once they get into the wilderness and the Lord gives his entire and complete law, he will expand the sacrificial and the blood rituals to a vast array of different kinds of sacrifices. Offerings, guilt offerings, trespass offerings, offerings of grain and all sorts of things. It will be very elaborate and very meaningful because he's going to teach them the whole counsel of God through the expanded sacrificial system. We're going to learn about the, the wave offering, which is the first fruits, which is resurrection in addition to death. We're going to learn about the offering of the praise and the burning of the incense, which is the incense, which is the prayers of the saints. Many, many, many things we'll learn from the sacrificial system as we go along, climaxing in one great day of sacrifice. And that is the great day of atonement. We won't deal with that today, but it is also a very thorough picture of the death that Christ died. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. You need to understand three or four slogans. I would recommend that these be on the tip of your tongue for the rest of your life. There are a few things you need to know that set the stage for what we understand in the sacrificial system of the Bible. Otherwise, if you're not careful, you'll adopt a pagan view or a secular view or maybe just a cynical postmodern view of the sacrifice that Christ made and you'll just critique it around the edges. You'll talk about how primitive it is, how bloody it is. You'll talk about how disgraceful it is. You'll even look at it carefully and say, well, this is terrible that God would do this to his own son. What kind of religion do you have? Uh, as one Episcopal bishop wrote a book and called it cosmic child abuse, that God would sacrifice his own son and give him up for us. This poor bishop didn't understand the love of God. God did not spare his son, but gave him up for us because how else would he redeem lost sinners? And this is the gospel of redemption, the gospel of ransom, the gospel of freedom and rescue, the gospel of God taking his people in a horrible place and putting them into a kingdom of light. And this is the flow of biblical history. Learn these slogans. Let me just recite a few of them. The soul that sins, it shall die. You will die for your own sins. The wages of sin is death. This is the prophet Ezekiel summing up the gospel message on its side of our need. Our need is for a savior because we have offended God. We have violated his word. We have trespassed against him and his law. We have done that which is perverse, that which is iniquitous, that which is crooked, that which is out of bounds, that which misses the mark. I just gave you brief definitions of a half a dozen words for sin in both the Old and the New Testament. We have committed acts of treachery and rebellion against our King and Creator. And we all deserve to die. I don't know what that does to your self-esteem this morning. And if that's all I had to tell you, I would really be a preacher of hate. But I'm here to tell you that there's a remedy 
There's a redemption. There's a ransom. There's a restoration. There's a resurrection. And that's the gospel message. And so as the Lord lays this foundation historically, taking his time, taking many generations, many centuries, to lay out this gospel of redemption, the first thing we need to know going back to Genesis 3 is the soul that sins, it shall die. There's no exceptions to that. Have you sinned? You will die. And your death is a punishment for your sins. It's not the end of the story, but that is the foundational beginning of the story. If you don't think you're a sinner, then you don't need the gospel. If you don't think you violated God, you don't need the gospel. Or if you think God is going to just let it slide and just sort of ignore your sins, you don't need the gospel. Maybe you need a little gospel. I can do pretty much on my own what I need to do, but I'm not perfect. I just need about that much more and I'll make it. And the Lord in his wonderful grace makes up that little difference. And now I can make it to heaven. If that's your understanding, you won't listen to the gospel. But if you see yourself as you are before God, not before your neighbor, you're as good as your neighbor, probably better than your neighbor. I mean, honestly, most of us in here are better than our neighbors. And that self-righteousness will also blind us to our need for the gospel. We're all at the foot of the cross, needy, broken, sinful. What do we have to do to be condemned by God? Nothing. We were born in sin. We are shaped in iniquity. The Bible says we come forth from the, from the womb speaking lies. There's no righteousness in us. There's no goodness in us. We're not even getting credit for our efforts. There is none that seeketh after God. I don't know why we have seeker-sensitive worship services. There's nobody seeking after God. The only worship service is those that worship Him in spirit and truth. The Father seeketh those to worship Him. And so, the soul that sins, it shall die. The second slogan that you need to remember is... The life of the flesh is in the blood. That's just a pretty obvious fact to us now in the scientific age, but it's been true all along. You drain out the blood and the carcass doesn't live very long. The life of the flesh is in the blood. It is the shedding of blood. It's the taking of the blood out of the carcass, out of the body that elicits the death causes the death we do what we call now soft bleed out the life of the flesh is in the blood so when blood is shed a life is forfeited life is given a life is forsaken a third slogan you need to remember is without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin in other words blood has to be shed a life has to be taken something has to die in order for sin to be remitted, sin to be canceled, the penalty of sin, the judgment of sin, the sentence of sin, the condemnation of sin, the sting of sin and death, something has to happen. And that is, there has to be the shedding of blood. And then the one principle we'll see this morning very quickly is the notion of when I see the blood, I will pass over you. 
God's looking for the blood. It's the blood that is the covering. It's the blood that's the agent that purges. And so that's what we have in this story. I ask you to pay attention to some of the details, and I'm going to review them for you. Let's look just very quickly at uh, a few of the details of this Passover. On the first of the month, on the tenth day, they were to select a sacrificial lamb. The selection of the sacrificial lamb was important. Not just any lamb would work. It had to be a lamb. It could be a lamb of the sheep or a lamb of the goats. It could be a lamb or a kid, but it was still the lamb. A year old, a yearling. By the time they got to be two years old, they were grown, and they wanted a lamb that was a year old about. It had to be a lamb, a yearling. It had to be the firstling of the flock. Because remember we talked last week about the firstborn and the importance of the firstborn. The firstborn is the one that receives the blessing and dispenses the blessing. All throughout scripture it was the attack upon the firstborn that was a judgment on, on Egypt and it was also the representation had to be the firstling of the flock. And it had to be a male, a male of the flock. And it not only had to be a whole, W-H-O-L-E, a whole lamb, but it had to be a holy lamb. That is a lamb without spot and without blemish. It couldn't have any spots or blemishes upon its exterior. It cannot have any shortcomings, missing a limb. Because the temptation is to take a poor little lamb that you look like is not going to make it anyway, or one that's sick, or one that has a malady, or one that may have been maimed at birth, or recently been fighting off an attack from a wolf from his dad. Who knows what's been going on in this? It'd be a perfect little lamb. No, it had to be a perfect lamb, a lamb without spot, and a lamb without blemish had to be pure and it had to be consecrated, set apart. It was not only should this lamb be qualified as whole and holy, but he had to be designated to be the one. He had to be a designated one. Are you hearing anything about Jesus Christ in this? Let me go on and talk a little bit more about the particular Passover ceremony. Not only were it, it had to be a select type of lamb who would meet all of this criteria who met the criteria to be our lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world holy undefiled separate from sinners pure righteous in every way only the perfect son of God could be the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world and so this is teaching us some things about Christ when they took this little lamb. Also, the ritual continued that you must kill it at twilight. When did Jesus die and said, it is finished and was taken down off the cross? It was in that late, late afternoon before the sun began to set and it moved into the darkness of the Sabbath. This particular slaughter had to take place. Then you would, in order to prepare it for roasting, you would 
pierce it through with a stave in order to have some rotisserie to put over the fire. Do you remember what happened to Christ just before they took him off the cross? The spear in his side. Then also this particular lamb, you had to, had to have it cooked in a certain way. He was to be roasted over the fire. You were not to boil him or broil him or eat him raw. He was to face the full fury of the punishment of fire. Is this not our Christ, our Savior, who bore the full brunt of the wrath of God in his atoning sacrifice for us on the cross? The full fury and the anger and the rage that the writer to Hebrews sums up, our God is a consuming fire. So the, the lamb had to be prepared in this way. But before they ate the lamb, they would take the blood when they killed the lamb and draw it into a basin, into a bowl. And they had to do something with that blood. Here's what they did with the blood. They took the blood in the basin and they took a hyssop branch. Which, by the way, if we talked about baptism today, I would talk to you about biblical baptism and we'll know a little bit about the hyssop branch. Would take a hyssop branch and douse it into it. Hyssop branch was thick, bushy, and spongy and would hold things. It was what they used to put the vinegar on with Christ when they pushed it to his lips when he said, I thirst. They take the hyssop branch and put it in that basin of the lamb's blood. And then they would splash it upon the doorpost in two directions. Vertically down the post of the doors. Horizontally across the liton of their ceiling. Across would make that pattern of blood. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. It's not just any old blood, any old place. It's the blood of the precious Lamb of God without spot and without blemish that's been strategically and deliberately paced, placed upon that pattern that is the sign of God's redemptive work of all ages. That is the old rugged cross. And so this is a little bit about what they should do. They were to now take all of the the food and eat it. And they would eat it with unleavened bread and bitter vegetables, bitter herbs. And they were made bitter by being literally cooked and doused and dipped in, in vinegar. And there are a lot of detail from this that we can extrapolate forward as we read the Lord's Supper in which he kept the Passover with his disciples. That's what they were doing the night before Jesus was betrayed and then crucified the next day. They were eating together this Passover meal, which the scripture said in verse 14 of our text that it was a statute that was going to remain forever and ever. And it still does. Jesus ate it with his disciples. Jesus executed and accomplished it. And everything that they didn't eat was to be burned up. The sacrifice was to be a one and done 
There were no leftovers. There were nothing else that was to follow through. There was no residuals of this. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Christ hung on that cross once for all and finished the entire work for the entirety of his people subbing in their place. In this ritual, there was profound meaning, especially having to do with Christ. The Apostle Paul says, when we come to the table, he said, let us keep the feast. What feast? The Lord said, keep the feast forever. We're going to keep the feast forever. Jesus kept it with his disciples after he'd been kept for hundreds and hundreds of years historically in Israel. Immediately, his disciples gathered and kept the feast following Jesus' death and resurrection. The church kept the feast all through the years. We've not stopped keeping the feast. And the feast is going to be consummated when all of us gather at that celestial table at what is known as the great feast, the great celebration, the great ceremony in the sky that wraps up redemption's work. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now this is Ascension Sunday and we haven't said anything about Ascension. Let me just say one thing about Ascension. What Ascension is, is, is the, the exaltation and the going back to heaven of our Lord in his earthly days and him being seated on the right hand of the Father. Read the book of Revelation. There's a scene in there, several scenes actually that depict this, but one is very graphic. When you look up there, what do you see in heaven? He's ascended. There's a lamb upon the throne. 